Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening, Lloyd. Well, I am so thrilled because whenever we have the opportunity to interview one of our own professors here at UCI, it just gets me so excited. And tonight we are so lucky to interview Jillian Hayes, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Informatics at the University of California, Irvine, right here. She received her Ph.D. from the School of Interactive Computing at Georgia Tech, and her research is in human-computer interaction. She has an emphasis on ubiquitous computing and computer-supportive cooperative work. And she focuses on recording technologies for education and healthcare, also on investigating issues of usability, usefulness, and the social impact of technology on feelings about surveillance, privacy, and control of data. And this is exactly what we talk about on our show. You can learn more about her at JillianHayes.com. That's G-I-L-L-I-A-N-H-A-Y-E-S.com and also at UCI. So let's not waste any time. And Jillian, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Well, I, I remember looking on the internet and find, looking for professors, and it, when I saw that you teach about surveillance, I thought, this is exactly up our alley. We need to get you on. But you also do a lot of things on record keeping, but why don't you explain to us, what do you mean by record keeping? Sure, absolutely. Um, it's an interesting thing because um, sometimes people try to figure out the disconnect between looking at, you know, I do a lot of research looking at how do we develop and design new technologies that can actually help us keep all kinds of different records. So you can imagine keeping um, records on your child's development and scholastic achievement and so on, as we do both in the schools and in the home, all kinds of health records, 
anything that you basically would want to archive for yourself sort of moving forward. But the flip side to that coin, of course, is all of the concerns about privacy and security and feelings of surveillance and control of your own data. Um, so what my research is really invested in is looking at the individual end user and how do they sort of document their own lives for their own purposes and how do we help them protect those pieces of documentation so that they are only used for their own purposes and, and the sort of positive sides of those things when we know that there's so many more threatening um, kinds of areas, those same kinds of records and documents. So Jillian, what was it that spurred your interest in this? Well, I started out really interested in the kinds of records keep, people keep for their own personal health because of my own personal health issues. I have a sort of wacky thing that is I essentially I faint when I stand up too quickly. It's a pretty simple thing, actually, but it took almost a decade of doctors working on me to figure out that it was as simple as that and trying to understand when I faint. And it came down to, oh, you know, just carry around a notebook and document everything that you can every time um, that this happens. And that seemed to me to get to be a little bit ridiculous. But this is sort of the default standard for, well, when we have no idea what else is going on, we're just going to have you document, document, document. And I started thinking, well, there must be easier, better ways to do this than walking around with a notebook filled with these sort of inner secrets of my life on a daily basis. Right. Um, so when I started graduate school as a computer scientist, which um, you know, I never thought I'd be, but there I was. Um, I started thinking, well, you know, there's things that computers do really well, um, much better than humans, and some of those are sort of keeping track of these kinds of minute details of, of our lives. Um, when I started graduate school at Georgia Tech, my thesis advisor, um, a man named Gregory About, who's just fantastic, um, he has two kids with autism. So he started telling me one day, he found out about my interest in sort of how do we document things for healthcare about all of the challenges with having two kids with autism and the sheer volume of documentation between their health and their educational records and keeping all of that straight and organized and keeping it safe because they were very concerned about the kinds of threats that might happen if the wrong people get their hands on this very detailed account of their children's lives. And at the same time, they were trying to figure out just how to get all those records together and make it so that you know the healthcare and educational professionals could do something useful with them. Um, so my thesis work was really all around the particular needs of kids in special education and, and more specifically kids with autism, and it sort of followed from there. With a really risky population like that, you just start to see all of the kinds of benefits and the incredible risks to having this kind of information. So it really spurred um, a more general interest in these kinds of areas by looking at this one particular case study that was just so um, extreme in these ways. Right, and when you found out from your own, like you said, when you had to do your own record keeping, that was sensitive stuff, very sensitive information about day-to-day -day living in your life, and obviously with the same thing with the kids and, and the autism. So it makes a lot of sense that it also turned your interest into surveillance. So why don't we talk about how that concern of record keeping and data keeping really does spur you into the concerns about surveillance? Sure, absolutely. Um, it's, it's a pretty interesting kind of phenomenon that we have going on in this country right now, and in fact, worldwide. Um, very much an emphasis on 
sort of outcomes-based healthcare and outcomes-based education. And if you haven't heard those terms before, it, it really is what it sounds like. It's people being very interested in this sort of quantification of the kinds of you know, human services that are being provided. And this is particularly getting quite extreme, I think, in the areas of both healthcare and education. There are people who talk about these issues in sort of public health and in, in education research a lot as to whether or not these are effective mechanisms for actually improving the services. So I won't get into that in too much detail, although I do have my own feelings about um, how limited this kind of quantification actually is in terms of efficacy. But what's more important for, for the purposes of talking about surveillance is that that has engendered a huge push, as you know, to connecting databases and making these huge, huge records of people so that you can really follow someone from the cradle to the grave, as they say. Um, and this does have some good parts, you know, in terms of epidemiological understanding of, you know, what's going on throughout a person's lifetime and throughout the population and those kinds of things. And it also could have potential for making really customized health care. But it creates a huge amount of danger and risk for the individuals about whom these records are, are beginning to be created. And I'm not sure that everyone's really thinking through all of those issues. And I know I certainly wasn't when I began. I mean, I was thinking really only about the positives of, well, you know, if we had all of this great data, think about how much better we could treat individual patients. Um, when I started um, opening my eyes to some of the other issues, and you think about, you know, what happens 10 steps down the way when you've got all of these data collected, and it starts to get a little bit scary, which got me really interested in not only, you know, how can we secure the data, which is something that people talk about a lot, but also how can we help people to make those steps themselves and start to understand what could happen 10 steps down the way so they can make better decisions. I'm not saying that people shouldn't keep records. I absolutely think that people should. My entire research agenda sort of, um, you know, hinges on that. But... I think it's really important for the individual patients to really understand what's being documented about them and what they are being asked to provide. Um, and at the same time, for clinicians to really think about, you know, what, is, what does a breach actually mean? What kinds of risks are, are you taking with your patient's data and so on? Um, and, you know, as you well know, information is largely invisible in a variety of ways. You know, it's sort of in these bits and bytes being transferred all over the place. And I think it's a very hard thing for people to to really comprehend and make decisions about. So what I'm really interested in right now is how do these individual end users actually think about the data that they're collecting and the means that they're, they're using to actually capture and share those data. Um, well, it's like you said, Jillian, that when you started making the, doing your own record keeping for your own life, you know, you were thinking, well, this is a hassle, but here's the benefits of it. And then as you got into it, you started to, you know, let it percolate and started to realize, well, gee, what if somebody had this and what right. if they had it? And I think that goes back to some of the issues of these privacy principles. And for me, for someone who calls me, for example, and they're the victim of medical identity theft, mm -hmm. they find out that a whole record was created in their name that has nothing to do with them. Yeah. Okay. And, and that medical record could if someone has a different blood type, which they probably will, it could mean a life or death situation Absolutely. or their health carrier may cancel them or raise their rates or when they go into the hospital and they're unconscious and someone sees the medical records that have nothing to do with them. 
You yep. know, that could be, again, a, a, a total disaster. Or I had one medical identity theft victim who called me and she was the victim of medical identity theft. And the person who committed the identity theft was bipolar. Oh, goodness. And, and they thought schizophrenic. And so when this woman who contacted me said they don't believe me, they just think I'm bipolar or schizophrenic, and I can't even get the records. They don't even want me to have all the records. So this kind of issue of surveillance and without any transparency is stuff that ter- terrifies me. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, all those privacy principles, when you talk about, um, you know, what do people know? Like you said, people give information. They trust their doctor. They trust the hospital. They give their information and they may not even know what's being written down there. Right, right. Absolutely. And I mean, the I, I'm curious how people even find out when they're victims of medical identity theft, because most of the people that you talk to have no idea what their medical records look like. And they, you know, don't get copies of things. They're not carrying around those records themselves. They don't have a good comprehensive picture of what's even known about them, which has important health outcomes. Um, consequences, because if if information is missing or inaccurate, then the patient may know better than the doctor in that case. But it also has these huge sort of privacy and identity um, consequences. Yeah, how they find out, Jillian, is they get a bill that doesn't belong to them. Ah. Okay, I had a woman who called me, this was several years ago, and uh, she got a bill. She had gone to her mother's funeral in Chicago and put her purse on the conveyor belt and it was stolen. And months later, she got a bill from a, a hospital in Chicago for the baby that was apparently born to her when she was at her mother's funeral. Wow. So she gets this huge medical bill and she says, wait a minute, this isn't me. And then they didn't want to give her any of the records because they said, well, if it isn't you, it's a privacy invasion. (laughs) We can't give it to you. So she said, well, this is my blood type. Was that her blood type? No. We went through just hell and high water to deal with this. But that's how they usually find out is they get a bill or they get some kind of statement from their insurance company. Mm -hmm. So it's usually a very insidious way that they find out. But it's right. usually through a bill because somebody wants to get paid and the and the victim gets stuck with the bill that the perpetrator really engendered. Right. So that's how it happens. But let's talk about your class on surveillance and record technologies and databases because here we are sitting on the campus of the University of California, Irvine. There's students that listen into KUCI. And let's get them excited about taking your class. Let's talk about it. Tell us about it. Well, that's great. Um, it's a brand new class that I just started last year. Um, it'll be offered. It, we we can't quite offer it every year yet, but every couple of years. Um, and it's I love teaching this class. It's my favorite class to teach because it's just totally unique um, as far as things that are offered at UCI. And actually, there are some some people who teach classes in what's called surveillance studies at other universities that have sort of similar offerings. But at UCI, it's a fairly unique thing, which makes it really fun because I get students from all over campus. So I actually had students the last time I taught it from the arts, computation, and engineering program, so a bunch of artists and and folks interested in sort of technical um, artistic expression. Um, I also had anthropology students, sociology students, computer science, informatics. I had a student from criminology. They're sort of from all over the place, which is why I love teaching it, because you get all of these different really cool 
cool, exciting perspectives, which my firm belief is that when you talk about surveillance studies, you need all of these different perspectives. Because surveillance studies, you know, as sort of an official field, is really, you know, very emergent at this point. There are some folks in sociology and other places sort of worldwide who've been looking at these kinds of issues for the last, you know, couple of decades, and there's certainly lots of folks like yourself who are attorneys by training who are very interested in issues of privacy and so on. But um, I think it really takes this sort of broad variety of perspectives to understand things like the new technologies that are coming out that are really complicated and, and invisible in a variety of ways to, you know, being able to track people, things like RFID and Bluetooth and other kinds of things that are so invisible to folks. Um, and, and, and GPS. Take, I mean, people you know, know that they have a GPS, but they don't always know when they're being, you know, surveilled by that. Exactly, exactly. And it takes, you know, a variety of sort of micro and macro social science theories and so on. Um, so I just love the class. It's great discussion um, and so on. And um, Especially when you get everybody from all those different genres, you know, it's, it's wonderful. To, I bet you're going to start getting the law students, too. I would love to have law students. We didn't have any before um, the last time I taught it, but I would love that. Well, um, you're going to start having because, you know, our, our UCI law school now is in effect. And so I would think that that would be a terrific thing for the law students to take because privacy law is going to be really impacted by what happens with these technologies and surveillance. And, you know, how does it affect us for the Fourth Amendment, the whole Constitution, Right. right to privacy, all sorts of things. It's, it's fantastic. Absolutely. And I do have the students read um, a little bit of information privacy law, um, you know, the European general sort of commentary on information privacy, the, similar in the U.S. and so on, um, and various things like that. It's quite a mix. They also read some pop culture kinds of commentaries on things. Um, and then had you had, very... him, yeah, Dan Solov, who we've had on our show twice. He wrote The Digital Person, and he mm-hmm. wrote The Future of Reputation on the Internet. So that's kind of fun, somebody who we've had on our show. Yep, absolutely. And The Digital Person is, I mean, the students just love that book. It's a great book for sort of understanding some some basic things that really brings to light, you know, a lot of things. That, that and the future not. of Internet, uh, and I would imagine that when they read The Future of Reputation on the Internet, it'll scare them to death about all the things that they share with their videos and their social networking, it's enough to really, you know, make you say, uh uh-uh, I don't want to touch any of that with a 10-foot pole. Yeah, I've been interested. I also teach a class in computer-supported cooperative work, which is really about, you know, things like social networking, email, you know, all of these kinds of computer-mediated communications. And we don't, of course, you know, the class is, is not totally focused on um, issues of privacy and reputation and so on, but of course it comes up. Um, and it's just, it's really interesting how at the beginning of the quarter, you know, especially undergraduate students taking these kinds of courses, they sort of start out feeling like, oh, you know, I just share everything. I'm a really open person and so on. And after, you know, a few weeks of discussion about these kinds of things, we get into they, they do start to reconsider some of what's going on. Well, that's good. It makes them think. And the, the problem that, that I see in you being a computer guru, all these technologies are really exciting and wonderful, but people aren't stopping to look at the ramifications of some of this. They're just forging ahead without really thinking like, okay, what do we need to do to secure it and protect it and protect the privacy issues? I think that's 
one of the real concerns that I have about all the technology. There's nobody waiting or at least looking into that, the ethics and all that at the same time or very rarely. So tell us about some of the research that your students are doing, some of the output of their work. That's a great question. Students um, that are working with me that are interested in sort of these issues of privacy and surveillance are doing a variety of things. Um, So I have one student who's very interested in the sort of institutional kind of tracking. Um, So things like CCTV, um, you know, large-scale RFID networks and that kind of thing. Um, And so they really um, are very interested in those kinds of comprehensive government and commercial organizations and so on. Um, I also have students that are much more interested in sort of the little brothers, as we'll call them, in contrast to big brother, where we have, you know, all of the people running around taking pictures with their camera phones, uploading them to Flickr and so on, and those kinds of things. And I just had some students working on a project to look at what are some of the implications of some of the new memory aids that people are developing. So photograph and audio-based memory aids to really help you know, people who maybe have traumatic brain injury, soldiers coming back from war, people with Alzheimer's, a variety of other kinds of issues. But then, you know, every time you're creating records of everyday interactions to help people with memories, there's also all of the other stakeholders involved in that, all of the people who are around them and are the subjects of those records. And thinking about, you know, what's the trade-off there and how do people feel about those kinds of augmentative technologies. Right, so like secondary, you're that. talking about secondary use, like if you prepare something for one purpose and then suddenly you find out it's used for another purpose that you had no idea that it was used for. Is that right. what you're talking about? Yeah. Right, absolutely. Well, let's switch gears to healthcare because now we're hearing a lot about electronic medical records and that everybody will have these electronic medical records and that it's going to be so good because you can transfer it in an instant. Paper records won't get lost. But let's talk about the implications of privacy with regard to these electronic medical records. What does it mean to us? Sure. Um, It's a really interesting sort of phenomenon when I talk to clinicians on the one hand and patients on the other about these sort of comprehensive electronic medical records. And Fairly universally, clinicians would like for every single test, every single diagnosis, every treatment, every everything that you've ever gotten as a patient to be accessible through one record. And their argument there is that they can provide better care if they know every last detail about you, which is a fairly reasonable argument from a straight healthcare is your only concern kind of you know perspective on things. On the flip side, you know, there are many patients who will say the same thing, but there are others who will tell me stories about going really far out of their way to ensure that a particular test, you can imagine an HIV test or a pregnancy test or something else quite sensitive, um, that that test is never associated with their other medical records um, for insurance reasons, for reputation reasons, for a whole variety of reasons. So there's a really strong tension right now going on between people feeling like they want to control their own data and physicians feeling like they need access to all of the data or they can't treat a patient. Um, And what we've seen happen in the last decade or so are things like HIPAA coming out to try to protect patients' um, privacy and information. And by and large, on both sides of this sort of debate, the um, patients as well as the clinicians, no one's happy with how that's sort of worked out. 
blocking all kinds of information sharing that everyone wants and actually not preventing the sort of inappropriate disclosures that people are uncomfortable about. So I firmly believe that we need to make some changes both to the policy and the technology that we have in place. And in fact, if we just update to an, a constant electronic medical record that you know interoperates between all of these hospitals and we don't fix our policies and our laws, we're, we're going to be in, in, in quite a bit of trouble most likely. <laughs> Yeah, and, and you know, one of the things that concerns me with these electronic medical records is this. You know, if you have a credit report and a credit profile that's got errors, you have the Fair Credit Reporting Act with a whole list of steps and a protocol and legal protections that you actually can make those changes. Whether it's identity theft or an error, you can dispute it. You can have a reinvestigation and you can have errors and identity theft deleted. Whereas right now we don't have that kind of a process that if there is an error in your medical record, a lot of times the doctors don't want to change it and right. they, they don't want to delete it. So this these erroneous uh Profiles might be on there that you don't really have the right under the current laws to really get an absolute right to have that deleted. Right, so, absolutely. And in fact, in um, some research I've been doing lately looking at personal health records, which are essentially the individual end-user-owned version of an electronic medical record system, there are many physicians who will just say, I don't trust anything that the patient writes down themselves, and I don't want the patient to be able to delete anything themselves. Right. This is a fairly scary sort of situation to be in, um, you know, in terms of patient empowerment, in terms of protecting your own data, and so on. Oh, yeah. You know, I know how hard it is. I went in, I fainted one night, talking about fainting. One night, I ate something at a restaurant and it just, I had a very weird reaction. And going up the stairs to the bathroom, I fainted. I'd never fainted before in my life and never since then. And so they ended up getting, you know, 911 and all these good looking para, uh, uh, paramedics came, which I did not want to go to the hospital, but I ended up going and they took all these tests and I was fine. I was fine. And, um, but when I asked for the medical records later, they mixed mine up with someone else. Oh, wow. And so it looked like they were looking for some kind of seizure thing, which I did not have. And then they they had the wrong age for me. Uh, on one of them, they had the wrong gender. I, I was in such shock. And this was a hospital in Orange County, California. We're talking about an upscale hospital. Right. <laughs> and I had to write letters. And they said, well, we'll put your dispute. Now, this was about uh, four years ago. They'll, we'll put your dispute in there, but we won't change our records. We'll just add your dispute to it. So that was really disconcerting to me mm-hmm. that that it would even be in there. So, you know, I think you're right. I think we're going to have to have some new laws or we're going to have to have some changes to the Health Insurance Portability Act because it is not really protecting the the normal patient at all. And they have allowed us now, they've had some recent changes that we can actually get those medical records and we have a right to see them and a right to dispute them. But I don't think we have a right to change them yet. Am I right? Um, As far as I know, no. Patients don't have a right to change them. And, And what I also find interesting is that though patients do have a right to get access to their records, it's very expensive in most cases. So... 
there, and, you know, to save anyone calling in and arguing that there are exceptions, of course there are exceptions. There are physicians who will give you copies of your records for free. But for the most part, physician-to-physician record transfer. So if you, you know, switch physicians, you move or something, they'll fax your entire record to your new physician for free. But if you want access to that record, they'll charge you copying fees. And they're quite expensive, sometimes a dollar or two a page. Right. Um, And to me, when you start looking at the economics of it and thinking about who really owns the data, well, it's who can charge for access to it. And so your personal uh, records are no longer yours. They're really someone else's that you can pay to to get access to from time to time. Right. And you would think that they're electronic. If they were electronic, you could actually get passwords and whatever else you you can get to have unique way to get into those electronic records. And if you want to print them yourselves, yourself, you should be able to do it. But they shouldn't be able to just charge you for that if it's electronic and they transfer, they're going to be transferring it to each other, hopefully encrypted, but transfer it to each other without faxing in the very near, near future if it's electronic. And that is certainly the hope. I mean, I think there's a lot of potential for electronic medical record systems that we can do things like cut out all this faxing, Stop having minimum wage paid workers making copies of people's records, you know, in the in the records management office. Right, and then know. and then taking those records and sharing them, like if if it's somebody like Farrah Fawcett or, you know, exactly, uh, yeah, exactly. I yeah. mean, that's that's certainly the hope, and I think that there's a lot of potential there. And I love the fact that most places now that are putting in electronic medical record systems are putting in a patient facing sort of personal health record system as well. So you can see your own record, print your own record much more easily. Um, you know, I think that there's, there's a lot of benefits to these kinds of electronic systems, and in many ways they're going to likely be more secure than the current paper-based systems that are, have so many different people laying hands on your records in between right. you and the physician. It seems like it would be real helpful if they had an audit trail of who did have access. Yep, absolutely. So that you would know if you did become a victim of identity theft, which does happen a lot at hospitals, believe it or not, and doctor's offices. But if you did, if you touched those records in any way or had access to them, even without acquiring them, if they had some kind of audit trail, so you would know who actually went in and saw it. And then if you did become a victim, it would be easier for you to find out who did that. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, we're speaking with Professor Jillian Hayes, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Informatics at the University of California, Irvine, right here on campus. And she's doing some wonderful research in human uh, computer interaction. And she has a lot of great insight into technology and surveillance, privacy, and control of data. So we're talking right now about healthcare. Let's go back and kind of share with me what are some of the other countries doing that we can learn from? How about Europe? Yeah, I think there's some really, I mean, Europe tends to be a little bit forward thinking about um, a lot of what's going on in terms of information privacy in general. Um, And so, you know, it, it makes sense to look there and think about how they're handling data management. And one thing that's been really interesting to me when you start looking around at these other countries is that places like Germany and, in fact, China as well, that have a long history of the patient carrying their own paper records and the, and the physician never keeps those records, their transition to electronic records in many ways has been simplified because they've transferred to an entirely personal health record-based system. So it's electronic, but it's still 
totally owned by the patient in that case. Um, and so I think there's something really interesting to sort of be learned about, uh, about that kind of model. The flip side to that is there's a lot of Scandinavian countries that um, have entirely socialized healthcare and are doing really well with that and have government standards with regard to the, to the electronic medical record systems as well as the security and privacy of those systems. And so you see situations in which this sort of one place of universal control is actually providing some protection for people because it's not, you know, sort of the insurance company keeping their record and the physician's office keeping their record and all of these different, you know, places where um, you can have risk and you can have holes. And so this one point of control is actually they're able to shield people a little bit better. Um, and we're in this kind of in-between place in this country where we don't have either totally patient-controlled healthcare and patient-controlled records, and we also don't have governmentally centrally controlled records, which makes things really tricky um, here right. in America. And so that may be one of the reasons that we're a little bit behind the rest of the world. You know, sort of worldwide electronic medical records adoption um, is two to three times higher, depending on whose stats you're, you're looking at, than penetration of these kinds of systems in the U.S. Um, we just have a lot more sort of legacy medical systems as well as we're a little bit behind in terms of the laws and the policies as we were talking about earlier. So there's certainly a lot to be learned from those other countries. And I think, Jillian, before you were talking about who controls the records, and in this country, our personal records, whether they be our credit history, unfortunately is not considered our that we own it. Right. And whereas in the European Union, isn't it different that the the records about the user are really, I mean, the records about the person is really owned by that person. Right. And, and we so I think it's a whole in, different, in, yeah, it's a whole different perspective. Mm-hmm. And we see that come up in our, in our research in general, not just about the medical records. Right. But, Financial um, too. Yeah. In, we, we just completed a study this last year um, looking at one particular recording technology called the Microsoft SenseCam, um, made by Microsoft, obviously. Um, yeah. And it's a brand new research technology of theirs that's a personal sort of picture-taking device. And so we did the work here in Orange County, in Canada, in um, Cambridge, England, and then also in Zurich. Um, and one thing that was really interesting that came up time and again in these other countries was people saying things like, well, I'm not worried about you know, someone else using this for the wrong reasons because we have laws that say whatever you collect the data for in the first place is the only thing you can use it for. Right, particular purpose, right. Which is a very different sort of legal tradition around information privacy and security than we have here in America, as you well know. Right, right. Well, let's talk about a little closer to home right here. UCI Medical Center is implementing a new EMR system. So why don't you tell our audience what is the EMR and what does this mean here at UCI? Um, So the new system um, will be rolling out actually the first phase of it in September. Um, Patients probably won't notice much of anything in the first phase because the only things that they're changing over are things like patient scheduling and and a few other things that sort of uh, workers will see, but um, the patients themselves won't get a hold of. What I think patients are going to really care about is another uh, nine months or so after that, so next spring, is when we're going to start seeing ambulatory record keeping. And ambulatory essentially means records off throughout different clinics, the kinds of things that patients would sort of run into on a daily basis. Um, 
And then we're going to see patients, you know, sort of that paper chart that if you're a UCI medical center patient and you're used to seeing that big fat medical chart, you're going to start to see that moving over to a computer-based system, which they're in the midst of installing computers into all of the hospital rooms and a variety of clinics so that you can actually be sitting with your doctor when the record is being updated and everything will be more digital. The plan is also to get a patient-facing portal, essentially, into that record up and running around the same time or possibly a little bit later so that also once you get home, you can start to take a look at what's going on with those records. Well, that's I'm really good for excited transparent- about it. Yeah, I mean, that's really pretty good for transparency to to let the people look in there and see what, you know, because sometimes you your doctor calls you and says something and you're, you're so nervous, you don't even really hear what they tell you. But if you could go then into the record and look at it for yourself, I think you'd feel better. Yeah, absolutely. And the medical center, to their credit, has been doing a great job with really trying to engage different researchers in this. So I've been involved in it, looking at it from a sort of informatics and human-computer interaction standpoint. They've also got Shelley Greenfield and Sherry Kaplan, who are sort of world um, renowned people in public health who are very interested in patient empowerment, and they've got them on board, you know, taking a look at some of these things and really helping to design some of the patient-facing aspects of this. They've got people from the business school and all sort of over campus getting involved in this huge undertaking because we're really um, very ahead of the game as far as other hospitals go by putting this in place at this point, you know. EMR penetration in the U.S. is somewhere between 10 and 20 percent, again, sort of depending on how you look at the statistics. So UCI, which has traditionally, um, you know, been a little bit further behind in some of these kinds of new technologies, is really taking a bold step forward by putting in this great big new system. Um, And they're doing it, I think, the right way by really trying to engage a variety of people to think about all of the issues of how can we do our security audits on a regular basis? How can we make sure there's patient-facing um, portals for the right kinds of transparency and so on? And, you know, of course, putting in any new record system like this is always scary. Um, right. People are very concerned about what are the health outcomes of these kinds of decisions as well as, you know, we want to make sure that um, all the patient data is protected, especially during the transition period. Right. You don't want to have any big security breaches. Exactly, exactly. But I think, you know, in the end, the hope is really that the data will be much more secure um, and that patients will have more visibility into what's going on. And and to the degree that they can make that vision happen, I'm really excited about it. Right. So is there something about that on our UCI website? Do you know, is it on the UCI Medical School website talking about this? That's a great question. There probably is something on the Medical Center website, although to be honest, I don't completely know. Um, The overall project is called Quest. Um, Q-U-E-S-T, Q-U-E-S-T? Exactly. Okay. And so it may be findable that way. It's the, the product that they're using is put out by a vendor called Eclipsis. Um, And there's certainly a lot of information out there online about Eclipsis and and the kinds of things that that come with it and the and the sort of protections as well as, you know, variety of applications and features and patient, you know, secure patient messaging and things like that. Well, we're going to have to interview somebody from there, too, to talk about that. That's that's incredible. Yeah, it would be great. I've, I've often thought um, it would be really interesting to hear from there. Sort of, you know, a few big vendors in the EMR space, and one of which is Eclipsis, and the other that you'll probably hear a lot about is called Epic. 
And I know they think a lot about the kinds of, you know, security issues that they really need to, to make sure that this stuff is locked down. Um, you know, and then there's a big difference between security and privacy. Right. You, you can have security, really, with, without privacy. Mm-hmm. You cannot have privacy without security. Right. But, but, you know, you could have things really secure, but at the same time, you could be collecting a lot more than you need and, and exposing things, you know, even to people who don't need to see all that, even though it might be secure, but mm-hmm. they maybe don't need to see as much. Right. So there's a lot of issues between security and privacy that always scare me because they, oh, we're so secure. Right. But, they don't, but they have the IT person who knows how to lock the door, but they don't know how to stop asking questions that they don't even need to have. You right. Know? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, it should be One of the things that I'm very excited about from a technology standpoint in terms of enhancing the sort of privacy aspects of things um, that UCI is doing currently is they're working on putting in what's called an honest broker protocol. Um, and the deal with an honest broker is it's a combination of human and technological intervention where uh, we develop some technologies that can go in and automatically strip identifiers out of medical records. Oh. Um, and then a human who is trained and certified and so on as an honest broker can essentially go in after the fact and verify things and do any sort of manual removal of, of leftover data that really shouldn't be in there. And then creating an entirely de-identified database that can be used for research and so on. Um, and one of the things that's really exciting about that that some of the researchers in ICS, um, sorry, that's Information and Computer Science here at UCI, are doing is thinking about, you know, how can we automatically de-identify portions of an image? So if you have someone's MRI, that's a very, very, very private thing. But researchers may only need need to actually access a very tiny part of that scan. And so if you can strip everything else out in some automatic way so that they can get access to the little piece of the scan, um, you know, what would that mean? And that's some research that people are, are looking at now and helping to put into place in practice at UCI. Because, you know, one thing that UCI has that some of the other hospitals in the area don't is this dual sort of research and patient mission. And so it's very important to figure out how can we accomplish the research mission while still protecting the patients fundamentally and, and their concerns about their own data and their and their privacy. So it's very exciting thing that um, is going on right now. It is. We're speaking with Jillian Hayes, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Informatics here at the University of California, Irvine. And she teaches a wonderful class uh, dealing with all of these issues of technology and the social impact of technology and surveillance, privacy, and control of data. So let's talk now a little bit, switching gears, about education. You know, uh, educational record keeping has always been important, and it's becoming an even bigger issue with No Child Left Behind and other types of lit- uh, legislation. What about the privacy issues of children and as they grow up? What What are the uh, implications of privacy concerns? Sure, absolutely. I mean, there's sort of the old joke when you're a kid of, well, that's going on your permanent record, you know, and this is always the fear that if you chew gum in class or something, it's going on your permanent record. But it's actually a legitimate thing. I didn't realize until I started working in the area of looking at, you know, record keeping in in education and so on, that there really are these records. Most likely, you could go back to your grade school and they've got a record about you stored probably in an off-site warehouse somewhere. But they do have those records sitting around. So you take that to, 
you know, the next extreme when all of these things go digital and they're a lot easier to access. And you really do have a permanent record. Um, right. For a lot of us, it doesn't matter too much, but I'm particularly concerned with special education, in which case it matters quite a bit because not only are we collecting a ton more data on kids with special needs than we are the sort of neurotypical children, but there's a lot of stigma associated with that. So you can imagine um, if you're fairly high functioning but you're on the autism spectrum, you get a lot of services as a child and then you're actually able to go out in the world and get a job and um, you know have a family and, and all of these other things. It doesn't change the fact that you have this diagnosis and anyone looking at your educational records can see it clearly, but you may be sort of protecting that area of your life a little bit because there is some stigma involved with having that kind of diagnosis or dyslexia or even, you know, attention deficit disorder, you know, to take some things that are not quite as extreme as autism. Um, and but but really that, they're going to prejudge you. Even if you, let's say, you had all those wonderful opportunities and you were able to achieve far more than they ever thought you could, but they're still going to be uh, thinking of you as someone who is not as qualified. And maybe that would affect you in getting a job because a lot of times your your school records are reviewed by employers, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, that has traditionally sort of stopped at your most recent schooling because it's just too hard to get access to those other records. And so people have sort of decided it's not worth it. But now that we have digital versions of a lot of these kinds of records, you start to think about a situation in which a simple, you know, you call up a company that does background checks and they can pull all of these records for you and send it over to, you know, your HR representative. And now there's a whole bunch of potential prejudices and biases about, you know, all kinds of things in your past. Um, even something as simple, you know, if it's not a disability of any kind, but perhaps you were just a sort of naughty kid. Right, and you grew uh, out of it. <laughs> right. Um, you know, it could be that people would say, well, you know, we think they might be a troublemaker here at our company. Um, and that's a huge concern, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's kind of switch gears again. You were recently asked to participate in the National Academy of Sciences workshop on usability, security, privacy of computer systems. So why don't you tell us about that workshop and, and what was that all about? This was a really neat workshop. So the Computer Science and Telecommunications Board, which is sort of a, a sub-area of the National Academy of Science there, um, decided, you know, quite rightly that, that these kinds of issues around you know, computational systems and usable security and usable privacy. So how do we really make it possible for, for end users to understand and act on their own best interests in terms of privacy and security? Um, and they started to think this is really a big issue. So they decided to get together, um, you know, sort of 100 people in the country who do a lot of work in this area, a lot of research. And it was just an amazing couple of days because it was, a group of people that you almost never see in one place together. Um, so we had folks from industry, you know, there were representatives from, you know, big, big companies, um, as well as researchers and academicians, and then also people from all kinds of government agencies, places like the National Institute of Standards and Technology, um, Homeland Security, obviously, um, and a variety of other places, all sort of sitting around in a room trying to decide okay, what are the big research questions in this area and how are we going to make progress in the next five to ten years in really making it so that 
people can act in their own best interest, act in their company and their community and so on's best interests, and and really secure their data um, and make it private and make it all you know work with what they want. Um, so, what were some of the questions that were identified? Um, there was a lot of things. I mean, one thing that I thought was really fascinating. Um, there were a lot of economists there actually talking about sort of economic incentive models and how can we really incentivize corporations to protect people's data and how can we really incentivize end users and individuals to protect their own data because it's often the individual who who gives away their own data and how do we you know provide the right economic incentives because as we know you know the flip side to that is that your Safeway card or your Ralph's card or whatever is an economic incentive to save a couple dollars every time you buy groceries, and you're creating a quite a huge record of your own personal shopping and uh, buying habits. Right, a whole profile: what you right. eat, what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So they were looking at you know how do we use those same kinds of principles to do the reverse, <laughs> to really incentivize to to people to be more protective. Um, we're also looking at how do we really capture, you know, end user models for things like security and privacy, and that's something that really hits home with my own research. You know, people have a very hard time making decisions about whether they're going to trust a particular piece of technology, whether they're going to trust another human being for that matter. Right. Um, how do you know what that CCTV camera that's looking at you, where, where is that data going, who's going to have access to it, what are they going to do with it, how do you even begin to think about these kinds of things? So we really, you know, targeted this idea of, you know, understanding how people make decisions about these technologies and, and how they develop their own sort of user models for what they think is happening to their data as big research questions for the future. Well, it's fascinating. Well, let's talk about your area of research. You know, you are in uh, computer surveillance and mobile and ubiquitous computing. What is that all about? <laughs> sure. Um, ubiquitous computing is one of those funny terms that um, got made up about 25 years ago. <laughs> and people are always asking me, you do um, so ubiquitous computing is really about this idea of computing everywhere. So all the kinds of computation that's embedded in your daily life. And you, you generally interact with thousands of microprocessors, which are essentially computers, on a daily basis. I mean, people don't really think about that. But nowadays, our coffee makers, our toasters, our refrigerators, your car alone has, a, has hundreds of microprocessors in it. Um, and your your so, watch, your cell phone, <laughs> absolutely. And then, of course, there's the more standard things like your laptop and you know other kinds of things like that. Um, and so, ubiquitous computing is really about this kind of vision um, that actually Mark Weiser and some other folks at uh, the Palo Alto Research Center put forth, you know, more than two decades ago. Of all of these devices are going to get, you know, both way smaller, like your cell phone, and way bigger, like those big displays you see in Times Square and so on. And when we think about that, it really creates an, an environment in which there's sort of an assemblage of different devices all working together, hopefully working with the human beings um, to accomplish a variety of tasks. And sort of this idea then originated of smart environments. And I, you can't see me, but I'm putting smart in quotes right now. <laughs> Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> the, so, smart um, the smart cards. Right, yeah, exactly. That you could do um, anything, right. And more recently, um, Adam Greenfield has actually come out with a really neat book called 
everywhere um, that's also about this kind of idea of ubiquitous computing and, you know, a play on the word software or hardware, and he talks about everywhere. Um, and so you have this technology sort of surrounding you all the time. Um, and, and, and kids, you know, kids have grown up with this. You know, I mean, especially when we think of the little ones, I mean, they, they don't even think about it. And, and I think, how did I ever live without a cell phone? I was one of the first ones to have one of those big cell phones that I put in my car. Ah, the bag phone. Yeah, the big phones. <laughs> you know, my kids remember that. They laugh at me. But, you know, and I have a daughter at UCI, as a matter of fact. And, you know, but I mean, the youngest ones now, I mean, they grow up with that. It is just ingrained part of their whole system. So... Mm-hmm. You know, I I don't even know if they even think about any kind of tracking and recording of these computer technologies. Do they? Um, Evidence would suggest they don't. And and one of the big research questions right now is how real is it that teenagers don't think about this and college students don't think about this? Is it just the sort of standard, you know, young people are more risk-seeking in general and, you know, do all kinds of things, drive too fast, drink too much, and so on, that, that we don't do as we age? Or is it really something new and different about this generation? And sort of only time will tell as, as you know, the sort of, um, you know, under 30s at the moment sort of get into their 30s to really see what's going on. Um, one thing I think is, is really fascinating is the number of kids nowadays who are sort of growing up knowing that there's a bit of a digital leash uh, between them and their parents and things like the GPS and tracking technologies on their phones, that parents get access to those. Um, and, I, and when they're on the Internet, that their parents can can watch them when they're on the Internet as right. well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Lots of keystroke logging. I know um, T-Mobile and perhaps other cell phone companies um, have, have started to make it so that if you have a family plan, um, you can – whoever is the administrator of that account can actually download the text messages from any of the phone lines on the account. Mm, so um, surveillance, so, parents surveilling their kids all the time. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so there's a whole host of these kinds of things that are, that are starting to emerge that kids are absolutely growing up with. And they're making the same sort of trade-offs that we make when we get our store loyalty cards. It's the, well, you can have a cell phone, but I'll be using it to track you and I'll be downloading your text messages. And, okay, well, I'm willing to give that up you know, well, it's okay if it's transparent. It gets back to that whole dis- issue of transparency. If you say, I'll give you a cell phone, but I have a right to to see these text messages, et cetera, at least it's transparent. I mean, at least you're giving them that notice. Right. <laughs> I think for anyone, you know, if you don't tell them that's the problem, it's like you surveil your employees at work. Well, if you don't tell them, then there's a real problem. But if you tell them up front, at least then they know. If right. You know, well, and they can make an informed decision, which exactly. um, some of the work that we found, especially regarding CCTV in the workplace, that informed decision has, at least until recently, amounted in a lot of people quitting. Um, of course, the concern in bad economic times always is that the worker is going to lose some of the sort of mobility and, and ability to sort of walk out when they're alerted to this kind of surveillance. You know, I was thinking just as you were speaking about, you know, the different uh, generations and I'm from I'm from the 60s, you know, (laughs) and and we didn't have a lot of these things. You know, it's like when my parents would talk that, you know, all they had was radio. They didn't have TV. And I go, what? You know, and then I think about, you know, my kid taught me how to use my computer when he was in seventh grade. But, you know, I'm, I'm pretty savvy and I can do a lot of things now. 
but we're not really teaching in the elementary schools and in the high schools anything about these issues at all, about the ethics or the business or the concerns or, you know, we're not teaching about that in the schools, are we? We're not. And I'm so glad that you brought that up, actually, because that was another you know big theme that came out of this workshop with the National Academy of Science was let's get the Department of Education in here and get them involved because it's time for a curriculum change. The kinds of computer literacy courses that we're teaching in grade schools are largely typing courses to begin with and sort of how do you use Photoshop, um, Microsoft Office, and so on, um, you know, as we move forward. And if you're really in a good school, you might be learning things like how do you search for references online and how do you verify that the information you're getting is good. But, but almost but no not one the is... ramifications of it. Right. Nothing about the ramifications of right. how do Absolutely. you use this, how do you ethically use this. You know, because we're seeing a lot of cyberbullying in the schools. Mm-hmm. You know, we're seeing where people are stealing information and plagiarizing, right? Yep. I mean, we're not talking about the ethics of all this informatics that you that you have in front of you, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's a huge issue. And it's funny because my daughter, who is going to be a senior at UCI, um, said to me recently, you know, Mom, because we were talking about credit scores, you're wanting to get a new car and, and financial issues and how do you buy a house. And she goes, you know, Mom, I never learned any of that in high school. Right. I never learned any of these practical things about financial privacy, you know, because she was using a debit card and there was all sorts of problems with that. People are not educated in our schools about the technology and the issues of financial and uh, privacy and security issues and even social networking issues that could affect them the rest of their lives. And we're not teaching that until they get to your course. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> um, it's, it's incredibly true. And this is a huge concern right now. You know, and, and there are people who've sort of likened it to well, you know, at some point we decided to start teaching kids about stranger danger because the world changed and it was no longer, you know, sort of the happy world of the earlier part of the century where you didn't have to fear people that you didn't know, people lived in smaller towns and so on. Um, And we have a similar sort of change going on right now where, you know, it didn't have to be that you were concerned about your computer. They used to not be all talking to each other. There weren't these huge masses of databases about your information out there. And we're in a different world now, so it's time to change the curriculum. And, and I think there's no such thing as too early to start. You know, I work with a lot of um, young kids through different kinds of girls and technology organizations primarily, and the first thing that they all want to do is get onto, you know, these kid websites that ask for a lot of personal information um, and want to track these kids because to be honest, they make really good marketing fodder. <laughs> exactly. Well, Jillian, you know what? We are out of time. Can you believe that? Wow. I, I know. I have to have you back. We're going to have to. Maybe I'll come to your office and we'll do a field interview with some of your students. It's just fascinating. You are doing such wonderful work. So thank you for joining us, and we'll have you back again soon. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, your host. Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. And also visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy where you can see our upcoming guests. 
You can listen to archived interviews. You can download podcasts. And please write us emails about what's important to you about privacy in the information age. Thank you and good night. Stay private. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KECI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.